Hey there, my name's Dave Robinson, and you are now listening to Bench Talk The Weekend Science. Our show is a little different this week because we're discussing a topic that is important to all of us, the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus pandemic. But of course, it's the beginning of the month, and we will be sticking to our regular programming for that time slot, a long-awaited story about what you can see in the night sky in the month of February. Scott Miller will be filling us in on that at the end of the show. But first, COVID-19. This pandemic we're experiencing now, it's the perfect topic for Bench Talk the Week in Science. Think about it. At what other time in our lives has science and the work of scientists gotten as much attention as during this pandemic? Sure, science always marches on, but usually not in the limelight like it has these past two years. I think the closest thing to approach that that's happened in my life was when President Kennedy announced in 1961 that the U.S. was going to put men on the moon by the end of the decade. Wow, less than nine years away. We were still watching black and white televisions at that time. Cars didn't even have seat belts at that time. So needless to say, this was a very exciting time for me as a child. And I remember getting so involved in studying space technology and monitoring the Gemini and Apollo flights that were going on during the 60s. And I wasn't alone because 650 million people worldwide, including this mesmerized 14-year-old, watched the moon landing live in 1969 on live TV. And now it's happening again. Science is occurring right before our eyes. We have this novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Little did we know that back in January 2020, these news stories we were hearing about this novel coronavirus was going to dominate our lives the way it has. And while the moon landing were certainly exciting technologies, they were adding something to our lives, making our lives more interesting. COVID-19, on the other hand, is deadly and has had much more dire consequences for us and our loved ones. As of this writing, 5,600,000 people in the world have died from COVID-19 coronavirus infections. So we're watching important, life-saving science being done right before our eyes in real time. But progress won't be linear. Successes will only come after false starts and wrong turns. It kind of reminds me of that quote about science. Science is a blind date with knowledge. You might not be able to predict what's going to happen on this blind date with knowledge, but we're bound to learn something from it. Now, Bench Talk the Week in Science has tried doing its part in documenting how this blind date with knowledge has unfolded. By my count, we've discussed the COVID-19 coronavirus on more than 30 different episodes. But now I'm thinking perhaps we should have discussed it even more, because even today, more than two years later, there is still a lot of misinformation and dangerous messaging that we are hearing about this virus and the diseases it causes. I got particularly concerned when I heard inaccuracies about COVID-19 being broadcast on forward radio this month. It was on our locally produced radio show called The Climate Report. 
The Climate Report has always been one of my favorite local shows on WFMP, but has recently played four episodes on the topic of COVID-19 that were, in my opinion, a real disservice to forward radio listeners. Frankly, I was shocked when I heard these episodes. It stunned me politically, but more importantly, it sincerely concerned me that WFMP listeners who might have been thinking of getting a COVID-19 vaccination for the first time or a booster, I was concerned that they might decide against that based on the inaccurate information they heard on the climate report. Parents might not get their children vaccinated. Listeners might discourage friends, family, or colleagues from pursuing vaccinations. Take episode number 321 of the Climate Report. That was first played on January 15, 2022. That show started out stating that the current COVID-19 vaccines simply don't work. Let me quote what was on that show. Quote, The official definition of a vaccination is that it lasts at least a year and it's at least 50% effective. These COVID vaccinations do not meet that basic definition. Unquote. Well, first of all, it's not a true statement because there are years when the annual flu vaccine is not 50% effective. And flu vaccines generally do not last beyond a single winter season. In 2019, for instance, the flu vaccine was only 29% effective. In 2020, it was only 45% effective. But I'll grant you, in June of 2020, the FDA did announce that they would not approve a COVID-19 vaccine for public use unless it was found to be safe and, quote, prevented disease or decrease its severity in at least 50% of the people who are vaccinated, unquote. So that 50% level was indeed the minimum vaccine efficacy that the FDA said that they would accept for this new vaccine. And you notice it's the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration, that makes the final determination about whether a new vaccine can be distributed to the public. It's not the NIH, it's not the CDC, it's not the White House, and it's certainly not Dr. Anthony Fauci, who Donald Trump, Congressional Republicans, Fox News, Talk Radio, Robert Kennedy Jr., and apparently the Climate Report is really not very fond of. So the Climate Report is saying that our COVID-19 vaccines don't prevent infection by the coronavirus even 50% of the time. Well, today I want to describe data indicating that these vaccines are actually much more effective than just 50%. It's more like in the 80s and 90 percentiles, actually. Although the numbers are lower now that the Omicron strain has hit the scene. But that's really just been in the last few months. I've listened to all of the Climate Report's episodes about COVID that I could get my hands on. And as far as I could tell, there was only one published study that was cited by them to confirm their constant assertion that COVID-19 vaccines don't work. I've also got the 10-page manifesto that the Climate Report has issued. And this is the only paper that's cited there, too. So we need to look at this paper in some detail. The title of this paper is, quote, Increases in COVID-19 are unrelated to levels of vaccination across 68 countries 
and 2,947 counties in the United States, unquote. This article was published in the European Journal of Epidemiology in September of 2021, and what the researchers did was gather data on vaccination rates in 68 different countries and almost 3,000 counties in the United States, and they compared that data with the number of new cases of COVID in each of those places over a seven-day period. Now, this paper found that there was a slight positive correlation between these two parameters. Places where there were higher vaccination rates tended to have higher rates of COVID over the selected seven-day period. This was a real surprise to a lot of people, and it provided perfect fodder for vaccine doubters because it seemed to be saying that vaccinations don't protect us from COVID-19. Now, that slight positive correlation was actually not statistically significant, which means that the authors concluded that there was no relationship at all between vaccination rates and the incidence of the disease. But even that conclusion is still a little surprising, and it fed perfectly into the narrative that COVID-19 vaccines are not worth taking. So I've had the time to read the paper now, and I do have some issues with it. First of all, it doesn't take into account the different vaccines that people around the world have been taking. The AstraZeneca vaccine, for instance, is only 63% effective against the alpha strain of the coronavirus. Coronavac is only 47% effective And the Chinese vaccines, and there are several, they only produce efficiencies in the 60 percentile range. So not all the vaccines in use around the world are in those 80, 90 percent efficacy ranges that the more popular vaccines here in the United States have, namely the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. But these differences in the various vaccines was ignored in this article. It was just, were they vaccinated or weren't they? I also wonder about the quality of the data. Are low-income countries or countries with repressive regimes really providing accurate information about vaccination rates and about infection rates? You could ask the same question about the different counties here in the United States. For instance, there's evidence that Florida is not really reporting accurate numbers. And were equivalent numbers of COVID tests given in each country? Israel, for instance, is testing almost three times more than in the United States. This could skew the positivity rate. And what about differences in safety measures like masking mandates, forced lockdowns, and contact tracing? All of these types of interferences are bound to affect vaccination rates and or infection rates in the different countries or in the different U.S. counties. Granted, I am not an epidemiologist, though, and I'm not an expert on statistics either. So for that, let's turn to a critique that was recently published in SOC ARXIV. This is an open access platform that's published by the University of Maryland. It's an article written by Dr. Andreas Backhaus, an economist who works at a think tank in Brussels. He had a lot of criticism of the statistics used in this article. Actually, he had numerous criticisms of this paper. First of all, he said the researchers didn't distinguish about who was it that was catching COVID in each of those locations, 
Was it the vaccinated people who were catching COVID or was it the unvaccinated folks? Secondly, yeah, the paper looked at 68 different countries, but there are three times that many countries that they could have looked at. And they omitted many countries that have excellent public health data. Belgium, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, and the United Kingdom, those countries were all left out of this analysis. Third, Dr. Backhouse thought that some of the data in this paper looked suspicious. The authors of the original paper remarked that the four counties in the U.S. with the highest vaccination rates, you're talking more than 90% of the population being vaccinated, we're still experiencing very high coronavirus transmission rates. The problem with this data is that it's not possible for 90% of the population anywhere in the United States to be fully vaccinated back in the summer of 2021, because children were not being vaccinated at that time. So it couldn't be 90%. Plus, when Dr. Backhouse checked what the departments of public health were claiming in these four counties, it didn't jibe at all with this claim of 90% full vaccination. There were some big discrepancies between what public health departments were declaring and what this paper was, and that makes the data look unreliable. Fourth, and most importantly of all, the database that was the source of the information for this paper was presented in a longitudinal fashion. What that means is that the number of vaccinated people and the number of COVID cases was being continually published. So it was possible to determine the overall trends in vaccination versus the overall trends in infection rates, rather than just looking at individual time points. But the researchers of this paper chose to take the time point approach. Instead of looking at the trajectory of COVID cases in each country, they just took a snapshot. They just looked at one week. And that's not the best way of analyzing this very rich database. So Dr. Backhouse used the same data, but analyzed it longitudinally, which means he took more numbers into account. He looked at trends, but he also looked at more countries, all the countries that he could get public health data from. Well, what did Dr. Backhouse find with this longitudinal analysis? Well, he reported the opposite effect that the original article reported. He found that the greater the rates of vaccination in the country or U.S. county, the lower the rate of COVID infections. There was a negative correlation, and this time it was statistically significant, unlike the original article, which could not show statistical differences. So if you analyze the same data correctly, which means you do a longitudinal study, you end up surmising that vaccines do indeed prevent COVID-19 infections. That's the opposite of what was concluded by the climate report. And the climate report took another step into non-longitudinality, if that's a word, when they cited specific countries like Israel, Singapore, the UK, and the United States that have relatively high rates of vaccination, but still have high rates of coronavirus infection. But again, it depends on the time point that you're making this comparison. These countries were doing quite well at controlling COVID cases last summer, like June, July of 2021. But if you look at other time points, you might draw different conclusions. 
at different time points in the pandemic, you'll see different relationships between vaccination and infection rates. That's because there are other interfering factors to consider, like the different strains of virus, Delta or Omicron. What masking mandates were adopted and when were they relaxed? When did businesses start opening up again? When did schools reopen? When does winter come and people move back indoors? When are the holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas? All of these things are going to influence infection rates, so you can basically pick the time point you want to get the results you might wish for. That's why you want to have a longitudinal study, because a longitudinal study looks at overall trends rather than what happens at one time point. So this research paper, although it's cited by the right-wing media and vaccine doubters so much, and the climate report, it's really not a very good paper. And wouldn't you know it, I found this article in Mother Jones magazine from October 12, 2021. The title of the article was, quote, A Harvard study is going viral among anti-vaxxers. The author says they are all wrong, unquote. Sure enough, the first author of this paper, Dr. S. V. Subramanian, a Harvard professor of population health and geography, says that the way his paper is being interpreted by vaccine doubters is wrong. What Dr. Subramanian said in this article was, quote, This paper supports vaccination as an important strategy for reducing infection and transmission, along with hand-washing, mask-wearing, and physical distancing, unquote. The main author of this paper also said, quote, other research has clearly and definitively established that the vaccine significantly reduced the risk of hospitalization and mortality, unquote. Oh boy, that was a lot of detail about one research article, I know. But it's important because this is the only research paper that the Climate Report cites in making their claim that the COVID vaccine is not effective. So it's important. So now let me give you some alternative data. There's actually quite a few peer-reviewed articles showing the effectiveness of vaccines in fighting COVID-19. But let's look at the most recent one that I could find. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on September 22, 2021. And the title of the article is Effectiveness of mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Among U.S. Healthcare Personnel. By my count, there's 59 co-authors on this paper. They were working at 33 healthcare facilities in 25 states around the country. Their idea was to check out the effectiveness of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines from the very beginning of their usage. They started only two weeks after these two vaccines started to be used in the United States general population. That was December of 2020. Remember back then, it was the healthcare personnel who were given the first stab at taking this vaccine because they were a perfect group to study. These were the doctors, the nurses, the hospital staff who were seeing lots of sick people. The study followed thousands of healthcare workers from December 2020 until May of 2021, a total of 17 months. All of the subjects were either treating patients or were handling potentially infectious materials. The researchers identified some 5,000 people who at some point showed some symptoms of COVID-19. 
These symptoms included fever, coughs, trouble breathing, headache, runny nose, congestion, muscle aches, nausea, diarrhea, or altered sense of smell or taste. All fun things. When the subjects reported one or more of these symptoms, they were immediately tested for COVID-19. There were about 1,500 subjects who tested positive for the COVID infection, and there were about 3,500 who tested negative. And once identified, all the volunteers were queried about their vaccination status. And if they were vaccinated, which vaccine did they receive, how many doses, and how long it had been since their last vaccination. Researchers basically wanted to know if there were differences in COVID positivity in partially vaccinated versus fully vaccinated versus unvaccinated volunteers. Well, sure enough, there were differences. By the end of the experiment, these authors concluded that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine appeared to be 89% effective at protecting these healthcare workers from contracting COVID-19. Two doses of the Moderna vaccine appeared to be even more effective. It gave 96% protection. Oh boy, this is way better than what the climate report is claiming. Now, that's just one paper on the effectiveness of these two vaccines. There's a whole lot more. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Tune in to future episodes of Bench Talk the Week in Science to hear more inaccuracies that the climate report is pushing. We'll have information about the safety of the COVID vaccines. But I can tell you now, the vaccines are far safer than what the climate report is saying. And we'll discuss these so-called top doctors who are pushing alternative remedies for COVID-19 and sometimes making money on those remedies. But hold on, we're not done this week. Here's J. Scott Miller telling us what we can see in the night sky in the month of February. Take it away, Scott. Scott here. February brings us farther from the date of shortest daylight back in late December, what happens to be the astronomical beginning of winter, and closer to the first day of spring, astronomically around the 20th of March. That means that we are gaining a bit more daylight and conversely a bit less night as we slowly trudge toward summer. For those of us interested in seeing the night sky, that means we have to wait a bit longer until darkness comes. Still, getting dinner out of the way and heading out at dusk this month, I can search to see what discoveries can be made. Jupiter is the lone wolf when it comes to planets in February skies, at least in the early evening. And even spotting that might be a challenge as it sits close to the western horizon at around 7 p.m. So we may be going into a bit of a planet famine over the next few months. It may be late July or early August before Saturn, for example, begins to make an appearance in the eastern skies after dark. That leaves the moon and constellations to occupy one under this month's sky. During the first full week of February, the moon is quite a way up in the southwestern sky at dark, being at first quarter phase on February 8th. Full moon is on the 16th, but as seasoned observers know, the full moon cuts down the number of constellations one might want to find, hiding the dimmer scars that make up parts of some of them. As for constellations, high up in the southeast is the pattern of stars known as Orion the Hunter. 
I have mentioned Orion in previous broadcasts, but as it is the dominant winter constellation, I will take the time to connect its stars to a figure making up the constellation. Three close stars forming a straight line catch people's eyes, as this is kind of rare when one sees randomly scattered stars across the night sky. These three stars are the belt stars of Orion, marking the waist of that giant. As darkness continues to come on, one might see what appears to be three more stars just south of the belt. This marks the sword that Orion carries. From there, two bright stars stand out. North of the belt is a reddish-colored star called Betelgeuse. This star and a dimmer one west of it called Bellatrex mark the shoulders of this giant hunter. A dim group of three stars about midway between these two and above a line connecting the two mark his head. South of the belt is another bright star, Rigel. It is sort of bluish-white in appearance. It can be thought of as the left knee of the giant, assuming, that is, that Orion is facing us. East of Rigel is the dimmer star Saif, which is located below the belt stars on the same side as Betelgeuse. One can picture this as the other knee. I mentioned the three stars that mark a sword tucked in the belt of Orion or perhaps sheathed in a scabbard, but one of those stars is not a star at all. The middle star is a huge gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. It is the birthplace of new stars. A pair of binoculars, perhaps 10 by 50s, can reveal it as gaseous. A telescope may reveal why the gas glows. There is a set of four stars near the center of the cloud called the trapezium. Those four young hot stars are giving off so much light, primarily ultraviolet because of their temperatures, that it causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. The Hubble Space Telescope and others have explored this nebula extensively across many wavelength bands and found, among other things, newer stars hidden within the shrouds of that gas making up the nebula, and some of those have disks of material in orbit around them. New solar systems perhaps being created as these stars turn on their nuclear furnaces for the first time. As I have mentioned in past broadcasts, finding Orion gives one the chance to find other constellations. The three stars marking the belt can be used to draw a line extending to Aldebaran and Taurus the Bull. The face of the bull is a V-shaped pattern of stars known as the Hyades Star Cluster. West of this cluster is a tighter grouping of stars known as the Pleiades, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. To the unaided eye, a count will reveal six easily seen stars while binoculars and telescopes reveal lots more. There are many stories about the Pleiades. Some even try to account for the missing sister. An Iroquoian legend speaks of the dance of the seven sisters. One night, hearing what they considered a glorious song, they danced off toward the source. But the more they danced, the lighter their feet became, and they floated to the sky. The youngest sister heard a familiar voice and followed it back to Earth, using a falling star to make the trip. Sadly, when she reached Earth, she disappeared, causing her mother to warn the other sisters to stay in the sky and dance to avoid the fate of their youngest sister. Returning to the belt stars of Orion and heading along them off in the opposite direction from Aldebaran, one is led to Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. Sirius is part of the constellation known as Canis Major, the Big Dog. Sirius marks one corner of a near rectangle of stars that extend down toward the southeastern horizon and make up most of its body and front and back legs. A good star map can help complete the dog. 
a line through the shoulder stars from right to left, or Bellatrex to Betelgeuse, leads to Procyon. That star, and a dimmer one a bit higher up, along a line connecting Canis Major and Orion, are what make up the constellation Canis Minor, the small dog. One last use of Orion to find a constellation involves a line from Rigel, the left knee of Orion, up through Betelgeuse, his right shoulder, and beyond. That line nearly splits two stars of about the same brightness, Castor and Pollux, the stars marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Lines of dim stars headed back in the direction of Orion finish off the bodies of these twins. So February may be the shortest month of the year, but it holds more than a couple of interesting things to see. All one needs is the availability of clear skies and the willingness to get outside away from the technology that distracts us. Thanks for listening, y'all, and tune in next week on your favorite appliance to hear Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Bye-bye.